Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Keener, joined as always by writer Jane McGrath. Hey there, Candace. Hey, Jane. So a couple of weeks ago, one of our colleagues, Kristen Conger, got to go see the terracotta Army exhibition at the High Museum of Art, and she wrote this fantastic article about it, and we couldn't resist sharing it with everyone today. Yeah, that's right. It's really exciting that they're able to take a couple of these soldiers and, and bring them around there at the British Museum for a while, and we're lucky enough to be in Atlanta, and they brought them here to the High. And it's really cool story about this terracotta army. It was actually just discovered in the 70s, and it all has to do with this emperor who unified China, actually. He was considered basically the first emperor of China, and his name is Qin Shi Huangdi. And if we go back to about the 6th century BC China, at that time, China wasn't a unified country or kingdom at all. It was fractured into about six or seven different kingdoms. And so Qin was the first one who really brought all of these different provinces and kingdoms together, and he did it in a very shrewd way. First of all, he used conscription to gather an army together, so essentially he forced men to join his army. And then, by using this army to overpower different nations, he was able to get people under his thumb, and he kept them under his thumb by unifying a system of currency that everyone could use. And furthermore, he systematized things like weights and measures and written language, so he really got people to unify not only through their submission to him, but through the way that they exchanged goods and traded and the way that they recorded their lives. So you can see a lot of benefits from this, although I guess it wasn't all selfless, as he did this all to basically build his own power. Obviously, you have like six different kingdoms with six different currencies. It's difficult to build bridges and bring things together that way. And it's funny that he sort of tapped himself for that mission, like, oh, I guess I'll unify China today. And so he did, but it worked. And not only that, but he started building connections and roads, and he was the first one to really institute the first portion of the Great Wall of China to protect his kingdom from invaders from the north. That's right, and we've done a podcast on that as well. Yes, we have. But the funny thing is, when you're that powerful and you sort of proclaim yourself as the ruler, you're bound to have a couple of enemies. And there were a few assassination attempts on his life, but he escaped. But he did eventually die. But before he died, he had a certain plan that he wanted carried out for his afterlife. We should note he had a very intense fear of death. And um, I mean, like you said, these assassination attempts, which he barely dodged, that, I mean, it's understandable that he would have a fear of death after that. But um, in addition to those things, he wanted to see if he could possibly not die. And he did a few things. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yeah, I know. He did a few things to to try to do that. And he commissioned a task force to go to this mythical island that's had a sort of fountain of youth type power that they thought of. Was and it St. Augustine, Florida? Because I've been there. <laughs> I don't think and it I was drink that. it. I'm still holding on. <laughs> I can see it. I can see it. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> But in addition to that, he got alchemists and magicians to make him pills and potions to try to hang on to his to his youth. And uh, Confucian philosophers at this time actually condemned a lot of the stuff that he was doing. They, they thought it was all hocus pocus and wrong. And in response, this was a dangerous move because in response, uh, Qin had hundreds of them killed. But yeah, it just goes to show his intense fear of death and intense fear of what would happen to him after death. But he also had a very grandiose notion that if and when he did die, he would rule the universe. And he had a very concrete, no pun intended, uh, I guess I should say terracotta plan, no pun intended, for how he was going to rule the cosmos 
in his second life. So he essentially commissioned, I guess, about a thousand different artisans to build him this vast army that included about 7,000 soldiers of different ranks. We're talking about everyone from mere archers and, and men holding crossbows up to various team generals, um, about 800 horses and a band of musicians and acrobats and bureaucrats and he was creating for himself an army as well as some sort of menagerie and uh, a circus or some sort of entertainment site to keep him protected and amused in his afterlife. One thing that's interesting is they're all facing east. Yeah. We have a great article on this on site by uh, our colleague Kristen Conger, and she explains that one theory about this is that he had uh, unified other kingdoms to the east, so it's thought that like his enemies were to the east, and so that's why his, his army is facing that way. But also, we should note that a lot of these are estimations. Um, we say, like, you'll, you'll see, oh, there are 7,000 warriors, oh, there are 6,000, oh, there are 8,000, and that's because actually not all of them have been excavated, and archaeologists are taking their sweet time taking everything out because it's so precious. And for one example, for instance, when these soldiers were um, originally made, they were brightly colored, just vibrant colors. And Purples now, and reds yeah. and greens. Yeah, and now you look at it, you see pictures, and they're grayish, and they're drab looking, and that's because these colors didn't last well over time, and especially even when you take them out today, excavating them from the land, when the sun hits them, uh, it really hurts the colors. And so they just don't have the technology yet to really delve into the full depths of this tomb. And what they've hit so far, or what the people who discovered it, a group of farmers back in 1974... They hit about 13 feet underground in search of water, actually. It was a total accidental discovery. They were out on March 29th looking for water, and they discovered a bunch of clay shards, and it got more suspicious when they pulled out what looked like a head of something. So they called a group of historians and archaeologists in, and that's when the excavations really began. But what hasn't been touched so far is what people think is uh, a series of palaces and ships and very big structures that would have been built from the same type of material. Yeah, and one thing that's interesting is that the tomb, which these soldiers are protecting, uh, they're taking their sweet time excavating that because some say that it's actually booby-trapped and, like, they set yeah, up crossbows. crossbows. Yeah, and so I would take my sweet time, too. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. And we know for a fact that people have broken... Well, I guess I shouldn't say we know for a fact. We have pretty good evidence to suggest that people broke into the tomb shortly mm-hmm. after Sheen died. That's right. There's evidence of fire, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. fire and toppled soldiers, which may indicate that they just settled with time, but more likely they were toppled when someone was breaking in. And we should note, too, that... After Qin died in 210 BC, his his kingdom didn't last for much longer. A, a new ruler ushered in a new age, and so his tomb went vastly unprotected. But ancient manuscripts describe that he was buried with um, all sorts of extravagant pieces of gold and pearls and fine gems, which could still be down there. We don't know. But yeah, great fodder for a raid, obviously. Exactly. And so texts like this suggest that there's a lot waiting to be unearthed. But Let's talk a little bit about how these soldiers were made. What's interesting about how these soldiers were made was that they actually had a, a variety of molds so that you had um, a sense of realism in the the soldiers. Some, some were smaller, some were bigger, but, you know, the, and they used different kinds for, for different uh, ranks in the army as well. And they had about uh, 25 different styles of beard and, like, uh, the way their hair is uh, tied up in knots on the back of their head, um, often askew. It's very, it's very different and it changes. And another interesting part is that there's a sense of racial 
racial diversity among these different soldiers. And they actually reflect, interestingly, the kind of racial diversity that is present in modern day China, which I find fascinating. And so one example of this would be that about 20 percent of the soldiers have square earlobes. And um, so that means more than half have like round earlobes. And that's the same kind of percentage or proportion from modern day Chinese. So the verisimilitude is just amazing, and you may be wondering why would the laborers have cared enough to go to all this effort. And we should mention that long, long, long before Henry Ford had his assembly lines making cars, the ancient Chinese had their own assembly lines making these figures. And like Jane said, they use molds to at least form the bodies. And we know that they range in general from about six to six and a half feet tall. And the assembly workers would have started by building bases for them. And they were very heavy, so they had to be very well-constructed, solid bases. And then they would have made their different types of bodies according to whether the soldier would be kneeling or standing, if he had a very fierce stance, if he was standing at attention, or maybe he was creating an acrobat or a musician. But where the handiwork really came into play was the individualized details of the face. Yeah, every uh, artisan or individual laborer, not all of them were artisans. They were just sort of slaves who were forced to do this. They they took great, I guess, uh, pride in making the different individual facial expressions. Some look fiercer, some, some look serene. Here's the catch. All of the laborers' names were stamped on the bottom of the statues. And this wasn't like Van Gogh signing his name to a masterpiece he'd made. It was to hold the laborer accountable for any flaws in craftsmanship that there may have been. That's right. And these assembly lines that Candace mentioned were about a thousand people big. So like you have this, this a thousand person assembly line. And I think the, the foreman had to sign his name to, to each individual soldier. And what I find really cool is that these soldiers, you see them today, and they look like they have their hands out and they're holding something, and it's not there. And what they were holding were actual, real weapons. Made out of bronze, is that right? Yeah, bronze and wood. The wood has actually um, not stood the test of time, and so mm-hmm. they're not there anymore. But there there are lots of evidence and remains of the metal that was kind of ahead of its time because it didn't corrode over time. And it's just shocking to me that why would Qin, you know, have these clay armies but give them real weapons? And also, I think they had armor made out of limestone. Mm. So he really had them all decked out. And what this does, I think, is is paints a picture of a very talented and very capable ruler, but shows his very human and almost childlike side with his superstition and his great fears. And I wonder what was going through the mind of such a, a great and intelligent man who thought he could rule in his afterlife and who thought he needed protection. Yeah, from and these forces. he wasn't alone. You know, I mean, obviously there are examples in ancient Egypt of people being buried with their things for the purposes of afterlife. But in China as well, uh, this one emperor, Han Lin Di, actually, he took the throne about 53 years after Qin. And he made a similar burial site not too far away from Qin's. And the soldiers are actually smaller in stature. Uh, and all different kinds of animals are there as well, um, statues of animals. Overall, it's not as vast as Qin's. And, and some people say that this is a reflection of uh, a nicer ruler because he was actually much nicer than Qin. And he certainly would have had to have commissioned less artists to work on the army. So yeah, I guess that points laborers. to the fact. Less slave labor, exactly. Yeah. So... This is such an interesting example of not only history, but art history, too. And you can learn so much about a culture judging by the artifacts that it produces, you know, how it values proportion and color and detail. And so I think it's just fascinating, a fascinating example of, of art and of historical narrative and a glimpse into the uh, the mind of a 
interesting and strange man. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. So if you want to learn more about the Terracotta Army, be sure to check out the article, How the Terracotta Army Works, on HowStuffWorks.com. While you're there, be sure to check out uh, our blog, Stuff You Missed in History Class, which Candace and I both write on every day. And we'll see you there. Be sure to send us your comments and questions to HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com, or you can leave comments and questions for us on the posts that we blog about at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 